Hello. Uh, so like Debbie said, I'm Sam. I've uh, been here about 18 years and me, my wife Lucy, our kids, we have literally grown up in our faith here. Um, so it's a real huge privilege for me to have the opportunity to share what God's been saying to me over the last few years with you guys, like my church family. Um, and my prayer is that you'll be encouraged and blessed by what we're going to talk about today. So I work in the NHS as a clinical psychologist and at the University of Nottingham as a researcher. And what I'm mainly trying to do is find ways to help us improve people's mental health in that, that kind of role. But in the last four or five years, I've been on my own kind of journey learning what actually makes us happy and more satisfied with our lives. And I should not have been surprised by this, but I was surprised by how closely current science lines up with what the Bible tells us to do to live a happy and satisfying life. Who knew? <laughs> so today, I want to tell you about three ways that we can go wrong in seeking happiness and three ways that help promote a happier and more satisfying life. That's what you do in a sermon, right? Three things and that's, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning. Uh, and a spoiler alert, everything that we know about this in science I'm going to talk about has already been told in the Bible, as we will see. Um, but let's start by kind of putting some frame around what we mean by happiness. So current science would tell us that there are three types of happiness. First type of happiness we will call the pleasant life. So this would be where I'm able to seek as many pleasurable experiences as I want. So like the top rung of this is where I can just get pleasure from anything that I want at any time, yeah? The second type of happiness we will call the engaged life. This is where I am with what I'm doing when I'm doing it. This is the musician who's lost in the groove. This is the athlete who's in the zone. There is nothing else going on but the thing I'm doing right now. That is a type of happiness. And the third type of happiness I kind of identified in the science is what we'll call the meaningful life. This is where the things that I am doing with my, li my life feel like they are serving something beyond me, something greater than me. I'm not the end point of the activities of my life. Now, here's the rub. One of those three types of happiness has no association with how satisfied I feel with my life. One of those types of happiness has a kind of moderate link with how satisfied I, I am with my life. And one of those types of happiness is deeply interconnected with how satisfied I feel with my life. You might have some guesses about which is which, but we'll come back to that in a little while. But I want to tell you a little bit about happiness in my life. Again, that's what you do in a sermon, right? You share a story about your life. So, yeah, I'm, again, I'm learning. So, about a year ago, I was returning from like an injury and I went on the first run probably in about a year after I kind of had this kind of knee injury. It was early in the morning and I'm kind of just running through a public park and I kind of hadn't noticed how sunny it was getting early in the morning. The sun was out, the birds were singing. I'm kind of running through this kind of natural environment and because it's early in the morning now, it was basically just me there and it literally just felt like it was like me and God. And... Me and felt like me and God had like a wry smile kind of moment. As I'm thinking, back most of my life, I would not have been the guy getting up early in the morning, full stop. And I definitely would not have been the guy going jogging. That's a very recent development. Like, I like sports, but if there's no ball to chase, I'm not there. 
And so I just had this moment of all these things kind of coming together. Here I am, running, enjoying running, really early in the morning, and I started to weep, like, in quite a big way. And I just realized how ridiculous this would seem if I told someone this. I went for a jog this morning, and I was just crying for like 20 minutes, yeah. (laughs) Totally normal. They would be referring me to a psychologist under those circumstances. But have you ever had that, where something apparently very simple actually has a real impact on you. The appreciation of something maybe you didn't even notice was there. But the opposite can also be true. So I want to tell you about when I first started working in the NHS. So I was a data entry clerk. That was a good job with good people, and I had a really good boss. But I didn't, what I found out when I started working in the NHS is that you can just go on the internet and find out how much you get paid to do any job in the NHS. So of course, I immediately looked up how much you get paid to be a clinical psychologist. And, yeah, of course, you would. So I looked at that pay, and I looked at my life, my immediate concerns, pressures, needs, desires, as I was kind of preparing to get married, looking for somewhere to live, still deep in my graduate overdraft, and I thought, if I could just be a clinical psychologist, I would want for nothing. (laughs) And it's funny. That is funny, isn't it? That is, that's the right response. That's ridiculous, but that's definitely what I thought. I'm just picturing myself doing that job, feeling all secure, earning that wage, and basically all the problems that I saw directly before me would be gone, and my desires would be fulfilled, and everything good would come to my life. Now, fast forward six years, as I'm graduating as a clinical psychologist. I had failed a number of assignments whilst training, And so I was kind of feeling like a fraud coming into this profession. I thought I I didn't belong there. And the way I'd gone out applying for jobs meant that I then didn't have a job to go to. I graduate, this kind of hurrah moment ends with me unemployed for several months. It was like the opposite of what I was expecting the six years before. You know, if I was expecting the job or the wage or the status of being a clinical psychologist to make things right, it couldn't have been more opposite to what I was expecting. I was definitely, definitely more satisfied, more happy as a, kind of, as a, a data entry clerk six years before than I was as a clinical psychologist in that moment. Have you ever had that kind of experience where something you expect to really give you the big, big bang for your buck and it just doesn't? Well, what we'll see is that actually that was pretty predictable from what the Bible and current science says that that tells us would help with happiness. The two go very much hand in hand. And this is where I'd like to go on this journey this morning, that there are some surprisingly powerful things that contribute to happiness and some factors that we'd imagine would play a big role but actually, actually turn out not to be as important as you'd imagine. So first we'll look at three things that we imagine make us happier but don't. We think we really want them, but we don't. And it's perfectly illustrated in this passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. As we heard from Susie last week, this passage is saying there is a type of understanding that is of this world that we live in, this culture, and a different type of wisdom and understanding that's higher from the Spirit of God. 
And this theme crops up a lot, lot across the Bible, contrasting this kind of living by the Spirit with living by the flesh or kind of sensuality, the kind of natural urges that kind of are around in the world. And basically, the principle is that the stuff that ultimately brings us a sense of satisfaction is not the typical stuff the world thinks will make us happy. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's true. And putting my clinical psychology hat on here for a second, this is where I get excited because this principle embedded in that text written 2,000 years ago foreshadows the best current science on happiness. So to explore this, I want you to imagine that you have just won two million pounds on the lottery. Congratulations. And if you don't, don't play the lottery, don't worry, I got you a ticket. You're all right. And now we're going to get 100 other people, and they've all won two million pounds on the lottery. Amazing. This is like the best news going. And what we're going to do is we're going to measure how happy you are every day for the next six months. How much happier do you imagine you would be six months after winning two million pounds? Like 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%? What would your guess be? Well, I'm not sure you went, where you ended up with that. But I guess in our culture, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? You'd obviously be happier. Most people would think they would be, for understandable reasons. But the answer is that, yes, there is a little peak that comes pretty quickly after you get, if you a million, lot, million pound lottery winners get, but by six months, you're back to as happy as you ever were to start off with. And we know that this isn't because of the money. There are plenty of people who have a lot of money who are very happy and satisfied with their lives. And it's not that there aren't some situations where putting some money into it would be helpful. It's not that. It's that the typical way of responding to that kind of situation leads us away from things that might make us happier. And this is what scientists call miswanting. And I wanted to unpick three of these ways that miswanting can pull us away that are right aligned with this kind of 1 Corinthians passage. Firstly, we get used to stuff. And there isn't much that we get used to quicker than pleasant experiences. So if I'm one of these lottery winners, I am getting myself a floodlit basketball court, right? And I'll probably need a house to put that in as well, so I'll need that too. And on that first day, I am gonna be probably, oh my word, I've got my own basketball court, this is unbelievable. But it won't take very long before I'm like, oh, the grass is coming through the concrete there, and I've placed it where it's in the wind and more of my shots aren't going in. Well, that's at least what I'll blame it on. It won't take long for that to just become normal. Blessings that are in our life become normality very quickly. That's just my basketball court. That's just my car. That's just my wife. That's just my job. That's kind of how we are. Blessings become normality because we get used to stuff. Secondly, and maybe kind of most annoyingly about this, we don't realize that we get used to stuff. We do what I like to call straight line thinking as a kind of normal. So I like donuts. So if we imagine I have one donut, it would be kind of logical for me to think, if one donut is this good, then 10 donuts would be 10 times better, right? If being a data entry clerk is this good, then being a clinical psychologist must be twice as good. You know, that's natural, logical thinking, but it is not accounting for this thing. I'm just going to get used to the good stuff that I have. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, we find it hard to see things in full perspective, and it easily gets us hooked on like random reference points. 
And so what I mean by that is that we make comparisons just with the stuff that's like our nearest comparison rather than being able to step back and go, this is, see things in the bigger picture. So let's imagine my uh, floodlit basketball court one more time. And I look over the fence at my new neighbours and they've got a floodlit basketball court and a floodlit tennis court and a floodlit five-a-side football pitch. Now suddenly, I've just got a basketball court. How disappointing and rubbish. And it's really hard for me to step out of that and look and go, I've got a basketball court. And like most people in the world don't have a basketball court when I've got this nearest neighbour who has something different to that. And just to say, for me, this is like the kind of commandment of do not covet was for me. It wasn't for people in general or for the person I'm coveting. It helps me because we know that that's going to lead us astray. So these are the kind of three ways we can get pulled in the wrong direction, like the kind of wisdom of the world. But actually, there are three ways. I've picked up three of the best evidence applications that do help us live happier, more satisfying lives. And you've guessed it. They're all demonstrated in biblical teaching. So the first one I want to tell you about is expressing gratitude. So I'll kind of unpack what that is, how we think it works, and how, you know, the writers in the Bible already knew this quite some time ago, and we probably didn't need to do the science. But anyway... So, the practice with uh, an evidence based practice with gratitude would be what's called a gratitude diary. So, three to four times a week, maybe between one and four times a week, writing down between one and three things for, for which you feel genuine gratitude and why. So, you're not just listing things, it's not like I'm thankful for the lights and my shoes and the carpet. It's not, it's not a numbers game. This is like, why for me? Am I grateful for that today? And as you go, you're aiming for three new things each time you do this. So if you compared people doing that with people who weren't keeping a diary or people who were listing their kind of hassles, what might you imagine could happen over, like, let's say if they did it for like three weeks, three, four weeks? Well, what happens is that people end up feeling better about their life as a whole feeling better about the week that is coming up, and maybe you'd expect that kind of thing from this. Would you expect this? They also report fewer physical complaints, less aches and pains from keeping a gratitude diary. What? And they also do almost an hour more exercise per week. This practice puts us in a mindset to do more positive actions unrelated to the thing for, that we're being grateful for. This feels like how God would work. Do this thing, and I'm just going to bless you for doing that in ways that are not related to the thing I'm telling you to do. And yeah, as I was saying, like, the aim here really is like, don't make it a numbers game, make it a joy to do. You don't need to do it every day for it to be... be, be the thing you're trying to avoid is this becoming like a chore. And all of this is in the Bible in about a zillion Bible passages. So I've chosen a psalm almost at random because Psalms is full of this stuff that illustrates this. And I guess what we want to look at here when we're reading this passage is that the mechanism is that it's getting me to look up, look around what they now call scanning and think what's good that's going on already here. The opposite of the kind of it becoming normal, blessings becoming normal. And then listen to how it plays out in this psalm. Psalm 147, uh, verses 7 to 9. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. 
make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. And the psalmist continues, he sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. And here the psalmist is expressing gratitude for things that you can't notice without looking around and going, what's good about this? What's good that I can see here? You're not going to notice the hail being a good thing. You're not going to notice God feeding the ravens if you aren't looking around for that. That's not the obvious thing that comes to mind. And yeah, he's writing about frost and hail in such a poetic way. This does not feel like a chore, the way that this is written in Psalms. And you can really hear the joy the psalmist is taking and telling us these small things. And I guess this is like a real take-home from this, is giving thanks is a command that could easily look like it's just something for us to comply with. This is a job for us to do. When I think the science around gratitude and thankfulness tell us that the very act itself was intended to bring us joy, as, as well as kind of a, give us a beneficial impact on our view of the life that we're living as well. So, second application I wanted to tell you about is what I call appreciative fellowship. So one of the most pervasive misconceptions about happiness is underestimating how important our relationships are, and especially those people that we are close to, and especially those people who we have like a shared value system with. And in our context, what I'm talking about here is the person sat next to you, the person that you are serving with, the people that you are in small group with that are kind of following Jesus, pursuing the same ideals, your relationship with them is probably more important than you might think it actually is. So I want to tell you about an evidence-based practice, and it's kind of one of my favorites. And what I love is that I've seen this done so many times here in Trent, and it's such a biblical thing. So think of someone in your life who's made a positive impact on you or your faith, and they're still alive. Now I want you to imagine writing that person a card or a letter, and now you're going to arrange to meet them and go and give them this card or letter. But you're not going to just give it to them. Before you give it to them, you're going to read it aloud to them. And you're going to write this letter in a particular way. This isn't like a praise or a compliment. It's not, thanks, you're nice. This is pinning down what they did specifically and the qualities you saw in them and where you think they could go with that. Encourage them where, where you imagine that might go. So, you know, uh, I really appreciated when you prayed for me about that, that career that I was pursuing, because I, I was really discouraged, and it made me persistent in prayer in a way that I didn't think could. And it showed me your faithfulness as a friend and as a follower of Jesus. And I can well imagine if you keep doing that, you're going to encourage many people in that kind of way. And again, this is... In the, particularly in the New Testament letters all over it, this kind of pinning down appreciation to specific behaviours, linking them to qualities, and then kind of the future impact. So I've just picked an example here in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 4. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, 
your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, if we think about the impact these letters had, basically playing a key role in the growth of the church at the start and throughout history, you might well imagine that this kind of small-sounding appreciative encouragement might have a surprising impact on the people, right? So what you give this letter that you're imagining, what do you think might happen? Well, this is what the science would tell us might happen. It generally makes the receiver of the letter happier, might expect that. But it also makes the giver of the letter happier. And if you had to choose between the two, the trend would be that the giver of the letter gets more of a boost than the receiver. It strengthens the relationship between the two people, and it makes the receiver more likely to do the things that have been encouraged and appreciated. And what for me as a kind of researcher in this area is interesting is those effects are felt one to three months after this letter. When like... In happiness science, happiness goes like this. To do something that small that has that big an impact is not normal. So this is powerful stuff that we're talking about here, and biblical stuff. The last thing I want to encourage, and again, you'll see this in spades, in Trent, is generosity. So let me put this to you. We get 100 people, and half of them, we give them five pounds, and we say, go spend this on yourself. You deserve it. Have a treat. The other half, we say, you got five pounds. You have to spend this on someone else. Who do you imagine is going to be happier by the end of the day? Yeah, that's right, Frank. These guys. <laughs> and it's kind of very much aligned with what we're saying. That caramel latte that I buy for myself, I'm going to feel good while I'm drinking that. But by the end of the day, that's going to have worn out. Whereas the giving a latte to someone else is telling me something about the role that I am playing in someone else's, the type of person that I'm trying to be, the role that I'm playing in someone else's life, giving me that sense of meaning and mattering. And so, yeah, and again, this is in the Bible in spades. So as an example, Proverbs 11, verse 25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And as we kind of come to finish on that meaningfulness point, I want to come back to those three types of happiness that I talked about at the start. The pleasant life, the engaged life, and the meaningful life. Which one did you think was the one that was very closely linked to how satisfied you feel with your life? The meaningful life. And which one would you guess was the one that has no relationship to how satisfied you feel? The pleasant life. So it is not bad to go and do and seek pleasurable experiences But if it comes to a choice between the meaningful and the pleasurable, choose the meaningful because you'll probably get the pleasurable and the engaged life as well. And this, as you may well guess, is right there in the Bible. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 27 and, and verse 33. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? (laughs) But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. 
this kind of, that, this verse and those three types of happiness, it's, you can't underestimate how much that changes the game. This means that something difficult, something painful, something hard, but that gives me that sense of meaning and mattering, setting my life in the service of a greater purpose. And here, the greatest purpose of serving the King of Kings is more likely to make me happier, more satisfied with my life than just seeking pleasure. And I guess I wanted to close by saying, I, coming in preparing this, I imagine there would be people here and online who might be in that place where you're like, I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and I'm doing the stuff God has given me to do, but this is not easy. This is hard to do. This is a tough gig. And I just wanted to encourage you to hang in there. It's unlikely that by letting that go, you're going to find greater satisfaction in your life. So the last thing I want to say, as I wouldn't be a good clinical psychologist if I didn't say this, is might be kind of ending here and thinking, oh, some interesting ideas. I'll have a think about them. I would discourage you from just thinking about any of this stuff. And I would encourage you to right now be thinking about what you might do about it, even the two-minute version of doing something. And so what I mean by that is it would be completely like a good thing to just say something to the person next to you about what you're, gonna, what you're thinking you might do off the back of this. Or to text a friend like right now as the service finishes to be like, you know, would it be okay if we chatted about this thing that I heard this morning? Or to just come down and get some prayer about maybe some of the miswanting stuff that you can see in your life or some of the ways you want to press into having life in all its fullness as, as Jesus promised us.